Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which we play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, we will be discussing Druid. Before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. We had several Commodore-related news stories pop up since the last show. There's a new documentary that's been announced called From Bedrooms to Billions, The Amiga Years. Apparently, this is a subset of footage that was recorded for a larger documentary simply titled From Bedrooms to Billions. This documentary is competing with Viva Amiga, which is another Amiga-themed documentary that uh, is in the works. Um, I will have a link in the show notes to all of these new headlines, but there is a link to information about that new Amiga documentary. There have also been, over the last few months, several Commodore 64 games released. Some of them are games that have been cracked for the first time. Some of them are new games that have been written and released, and someone went through the trouble of creating a compilation pack of all those. So... If you're not following day-by-day release of Commodore 64 titles, you can download all of these games in one large compilation pack. So again, on the show notes, which you can find at SpriteCastle.com, you'll find a link to download the compilation pack. There are games in there such as Beach Buggy Simulator, the Pac-Man Arcade Preview, which is a new version of Pac-Man being worked on for the Commodore 64, and Donkey Kong Jr., which was never originally released for the 64 back in the day, but was recently released. You know what? In fact, it is such a great version, and I am going to make a decision right here on the fly and say that Donkey Kong Jr. will be the game I will be covering in Episode 9 of Sprite Castle. So let's just go ahead and mark that down. We will be playing Donkey Kong Jr. on the next episode. It's a fantastic port. But if you want to download uh, that compilation pack of games, you can go to the show notes, follow the link there, and download this large package of uh, 20 to 30 games. I announced on the last show that there was a new version of GameBase 64, a new release pack of GameBase 64, but I forgot to mention the amazing GameBase 64 reorganizer tool, which was written by my friend, Obliterator918. I will also include a link for this in the show notes. And this is a very handy utility that takes the game base gigantic archive of games. And when you run this, it sorts them out. It sorts them into different directories. It renames things. It makes it very handy, especially if you have a 1541 Ultimate and would like to put the entire game base 64 collection on an SD card. It's very handy to you. So I will add a link to that. Probably the biggest Commodore-related news story that came out over the past week or two was the discovery and subsequent Kickstarter project related to the Commodore 64C molds. A fellow named Dallas Moore, who describes himself as a picker, just like the pickers on the American Pickers television show, was at a auction 
taking place at an injection molding company when he ran across the original molds that were used for the Commodore 64C. Now, if you're not familiar with the difference between the two, the Commodore 64, the original case is the one that's the same shape as the VIC-20 and the Commodore 16. It's sometimes referred to as the bread bin Commodore 64. And the Commodore 64C was the later release, a little bit sleeker, uh, not quite as tall, and it was released to uh, make the Commodore 64 look more like contemporary machines, including the Commodore 128 and the Amiga. So uh, this fellow found the original molds. He started a Kickstarter and is going to be releasing new Commodore 64C cases in various colors. The limited editions originally announced on the Kickstarter were red, white, and blue. They're about $30, I believe, for each one. For $100, uh, maybe I think it's $35, because for $100, you could get all three, which is what I kickstarted. And two additional colors have been announced. One is a light tan, and the other is see-through, like transparent, clear plastic, which I think is super awesome. I think that's really cool. So I have uh, updated my Kickstarter pledge to also get the clear case. Dallas says that the cases will go into production as soon as the goal was met. The goal was met on the first day <laughs> of the Kickstarter. The target goal was $10,000, and the project currently sits at $81,000 with eight days left to go. So that's pretty exciting. We will be seeing new Commodore 64C cases very soon. I don't need four different cases, which is what I'm purchasing. So I don't know what I'm going to do with those. I almost said I might give them away, but let's, let's not be crazy. <laughs> let's not get kooky. I don't tend to get rid of things. I hoard things. That's the way the system works. That's all the news headlines I have. Let's get to feedback from the last episode. And I have a couple of quick feedbacks I got from listeners. First one is from Ardvark. Ardvark said, uh, this is in reference to the last episode, which was about fourth and inches, the accolade football game. Ardvark says, I didn't think I'd care for this one because of the sports aspect, but it's actually the best one yet. Made me think about how all these rather simple phone games are becoming so popular and how easily stuff like that could be made on a Commodore 64. Why didn't things like Flappy Bird and Temple Run show up on the 8-bit scene decades ago? Maybe they did, but were dismissed as too simple by the users. Uh, that is a good question, Aardvark. I'm not exactly sure why. I do. I have read and come up with some of my own theories. Obviously, Computers in the early 80s could not compete with the graphics and horsepower of arcade games. So during that time, that's when we began to see a difference in computer games. That's when we began to see computer games doing things that arcade games couldn't do well. Arcade games were designed to uh, kill users and get them off the machine within a couple of minutes. So computer games went the other way, and that's when we began to see role-playing games and uh, adventure games, text games, things like that. And of course, ports of arcade games, things like that. So I suspect that those, you know, the, the market for these Twitch type games is for people on the go, for someone who's waiting in line, for someone who's in the bathroom, uh, someone who's on the subway and so on and so forth. So I don't know that we need, that we necessarily have that market 
for home computer users, but Commodore 64, you know, there was a port of Flappy Bird last year, late last year for the Commodore 64 and for the Apple II, for a few other, and there's even one for the Atari 2600. So those games are technically feasible for home computer owners. I just don't know that people necessarily want to play them, but that's a great question. I got feedback from Rob Snyder, who said, great show on this one. Although I owned many systems back in the day, this was my first ever sports game for any system, and I definitely have many fond memories of playing it. It was one of those games that you could often conjole your non-video game playing friends into playing just for their love of football. That's a good point, too. It had a very wide appeal more than just to computer owners or computer-type people, I think. Uh, when I think of retro computer people, we have a lot of fantasy-type games, space games, shooter games, or whatever. So this was a good way to get your sports friends uh, over to play a game with you. He also says, uh, nice touch that I mentioned the player names. They were funny back then and to me still are. Well, I, th- I thought they were funny, too. They made me laugh. And you don't really get the full joke unless you go into the roster and look at the names. A lot of times... Uh, whenever you, you, the game will just mention the player by the last name, like Pitts, but it's not until you go into the roster and you see RM Pitts <laughs> that you get the full joke. Finally, I got a feedback from Mike, that cool guy who says, good episode. You've been on a streak with this podcast and I hope it continues. May I suggest some games? So I will tell you, Mike and all listeners that I love all suggestions. I have a list of 30 to 40 games right now in my backlog, and I am just, each each uh, time I sit down to record one, I go look and see something that looks good, and, and that becomes the next game. So there's no rhyme or reason, really, at this point, as to what order I'm picking games. Mike suggested I do an episode on Elite and another one on Questron. He says those were two of his most played Commodore games. I'm sure someone has already sent you the name of the music at the end of this episode. Oh, Mike! But in case they haven't, it is Rock and Roll Part 2, and that is correct. That brings us to the King of the Castle. The King of the Castle for this episode is not Mike. (laughs) Sorry, Mike. I think Mike was third in the submission list. The first person to guess right was Scott Sackett. Scott Sackett um, came close to winning previously, and now he is the official King of the Castle for this episode. By the way, of the three winners I've had so far, one has come in email, one has come through Twitter, and one has come through Facebook. So equal opportunity submissions right now. Those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paper boy who just ran over my kid's remote control car. All right. Boy, what a headache. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. I couldn't think of anything magic related when it comes to snacks, but at the top of this game, there are three icons, and I'll be discussing what those are for, but there are three icons. One's water, one's fire, and one is electricity. But when I first glanced at them, I thought there's one for water, there's one for wire, and there is a noodle. And so instantly, I thought of ramen noodles, which is funny because you would uh, put water in a pot, you would put it on fire on the stove, and then you would put the noodles in. And so that is actually what I had. I made myself some ramen noodles, and it was kind of funny because 
when I was a kid playing a lot of Commodore games, I would come home from school and I would have whatever games I downloaded, you know, during the day or from the night before. And so I would make myself a snack. I would make myself some ramen noodles. That was a pretty common snack around my house growing up. So it did have that retro feel as far as sitting down and eating some ramen noodles while playing this game. So I did enjoy that. So this week's snack was the not very exciting, but still enjoyable ramen noodles. And speaking of a game that contains soup to nuts, let's get started talking about this week's game, Druid. Druid was published for the Commodore 64 in 1986 by Firebird Software. It is a game for one or two players that uses joystick and keyboard controls. According to MobyGames.com, Firebird released 142 games, mostly for 8- and 16-bit computers. Rainbird, which was a subsidiary of Firebird, released an additional 26 games, mostly for 16-bit computers. Firebird and Rainbird were purchased by Microprose in 1989 and phased out shortly after that. Druid was written and programmed by Dean Carter and Andrew Bailey. Those are both names uh, well-known in the game programming circles. Dean Carter designed Fable. He designed Dungeon Keeper and Rockman and several other games. Andrew Bailey was responsible for, if you're a Commodore uh, fan from back in the day, you may recognize the Demons of Topaz. He did that. Most recently, he has served as the chief technology officer for several Disney and Pixar games uh, and also for THQ games. So both those guys have been very active in game programming for a long time. way to explain Druid from a visual aspect is that it is a gauntlet clone. You control a Druid that looks almost identical to the wizard from Gauntlet. Uh, in fact, from just a few feet away, you might actually mistake this as a port of Gauntlet. Except, of course, you are not a wizard. You're a Druid. thus the name. Here is the introductory text, which is included in the manual. Until now, the balance of power has been held and peace maintained throughout Bellorn, but now four demon princes have appeared through an interdimensional gateway in the dungeons of the evil Lich Akamantor. <laughs> the task of destroying the princes and closing the gateway has fallen on you, last of the great druids. The demon princes are to be found lurking in the darkest depths of the dungeon and can only be destroyed by use of your most powerful spell, which must, in this case, be transmitted by touch. Throughout the dungeon, you'll find chests containing spells of formidable power to aid you in your quest, and pentagrams of life, which will fully revitalize your life essence. Use these resources wisely in order to survive the constant onslaught of the hellspawn dimensional monsters and face the demon princes. Succeed! And you may attain the ultimate level of light master, greatest of all druids. Fail and become no more than a half wit. <laughs> That's kind of insulting. 
your captive soul, joining the many ghosts of those who have preceded you lost in Akamantor's dungeons. Uh, I also found on Wikipedia that your character's name, the druid's name, is Hazranax. Hazranax? H-A-S-R-I-N-A-X. Or A-X-X, depending on the source you find. I could not find that name listed in the documentation anywhere. However, uh, the name is listed in the documentation for Druid 2 and Druid 3, which we'll be talking about shortly. And apparently you are the same character. So... We can only assume that your name in this game also is Hazrax. First up is the title screen, which is an amazing piece of artwork. There is a floating demonic head. It looks like the same skull that is on the cover of the the first Danzig album. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like to me. On the left-hand side, you can see the druid. On the ground, you can see the stairs going down. Into the dungeons, you can see the castle in the distance. So this is just a fantastic. This is uh, this and Druid Two both have really, really good title screens. Some of the best graphics uh, title screens that I can remember seeing on the Commodore sixty four. Once you get past the title screen, you will be launched into the game. And as those uh, introductory words explain, the goal is to destroy the four magic skulls which are hidden in eight levels. You have three different types of shots or spells, if you will. You have water, fire, and electricity. So I'm going to be doing a lot of comparing and contrasting this game to Gauntlet. So in Gauntlet, the different players had different weapons. You know, Barbarian had his throwing axe. Uh, Wizard had his fireball. So in this game, you can change different types of weapons. Again, you have Water, fire, and electricity. Now, the difference in Druid is that your shots are limited, and we will be talking about how to replenish those here in just a moment. There are also spells of invisibility. If you cast that, the monsters won't be able to see you for a short period of time. There is a spell to summon a golem. There is a spell called chaos, and there are spells for keys. So I don't know why, I guess just for consistency in this game, but instead of picking up physical keys to open doors, you pick up spells, which are key spells that you cast to open doors. I never even knew that until I read the documentation. I mean, it looks to me, it it looks just like you're picking up keys, but whatever. Uh, Through your adventures, you will also encounter those rotating pentagrams, which will restore your health. So instead of a gauntlet where you would eat food, in this game, you just find these pentagrams. And this is a little counterintuitive, both of these things, the rotating pentagrams. And then also there are the little chests that you can access, which will replenish your items. The chests may contain multiple items. So there may be fire shots or fire spells, water spells, there may be key spells, whatever, but you can only pick one item. So when you pick that item, then the chest disappears and everything else goes away. So you do have to use a little bit of strategy depending on where you are in the game, what's going on. The reason I say that those last two items are counterintuitive is because the little chests look like the monster generators from Gauntlet. So uh, my, I spent a lot of time trying to destroy them, <laughs> which you can't do. Instead, you're supposed to access them almost like a, a control panel. Same thing for the rotating pentagram. The rotating pentagram, uh, looks like 
every Motley Crue video I ever saw in my life. It, it looks like something you would not want to stand on. Um, and so, but apparently druids, you know, get power from these pentagrams. So you do want to go stand on them. But in my gut reaction was to not want to stand on these. You will encounter lots of different kinds of enemies. There are snakes and beetles and skeletons and all these different creatures. And the spells that you are using react differently. So, for example, beetles. You'll find beetles right off the bat. Uh, beetles can be destroyed with one shot from a firebolt, but it will take two shots if you're using electricity and three shots if you're shooting water. Skeletons, on the other hand, are destroyed by only one water bolt, two electricity bolts, and three fire bolts. And then later on in the uh, higher or technically lower levels, you'll encounter things like devils. Devils can be defeated by one single electricity bolt, but it takes three fire bolts and three water bolts. Now, all of this is in the documentation. So if you have not read the documentation, there is a link to the manual from SpriteCastle.com. And you can make it through the game without switching in theory, but you're going to run out of your shots a lot sooner if you're you know, using the wrong type. And each thing that you kill, you're having to kill with three shots instead of one shot. So that's just something to keep in mind. The controls are a little confusing. It's not bad if you have the manual, but if you don't have the manual and you're just picking up a joystick and trying to play this game, you're not going to get very far. The P button on the keyboard, well, first of all, the joystick controls the druid. So up, down, left, right, fire button shoots. The P button on the keyboard cycles through your spells. So the fire, you know, your fire bolts, the water bolts, the electricity bolts, you press P to cycle through each one of those. You press the plus key to use uh, the key spell and minus for the invisibility spell. Now, earlier I said there was also a golem spell. And a golem is very interesting. A golem is... A magical creature, if you've played Dungeons & Dragons or even some old role-playing games like Wizardry and Bard's Tale, you're, you may be familiar with golems. Well, the golem can be summoned, and once you summon him, there are two ways to control him. One is what would be called automatic mode. And in automatic mode, you press A, and then you can command the golem to either wait, so that makes him stay wherever he's at, follow you or to send him in whatever direction that you're facing, which means he will basically get in front of you uh, so that you can kind of use the golem as a shield. And if there's a area with a lot of creatures or you can drag him around, have him follow you around. Or like I said, you can have him wait and come back and get him. Now, if you pause, this part is not explained well, but if you pause the game and then hit the Commodore key, you can enable two-player mode and someone else, your friend, can use the other joystick and control the golem. And suddenly, Druid becomes a two-player game very similar to Gauntlet. Now, the golem cannot, his health can't be, he can't stand on the pentagrams and get healed. So once he's dead, he's dead. But all the Druid has to do is find another golem spell and recast that and summon another golem. The other keys on the keyboard, the clear home key, cast the chaos spell. The chaos spell is similar to the potions in Gauntlet that will destroy all the creatures on the screen. But also, the chaos spell is what is used to defeat the demon princes. And you have to actually touch them. It's kind of like 
accessing one of those ports. Once you get up and touch them, then you cast the chaos spell and they are defeated. Uh, and finally, the Commodore run stop key uh, will pause the game. Other than that, the gameplay is very similar to Gauntlet. You are a druid, not a wizard, and the difference is a druid wears blue robes, where a wizard would wear yellow robes in Gauntlet. In Gauntlet 2, I guess you could pick blue wizard, and it would look just like a druid. It'd be very confusing for enemy creatures trying to kill you. But you work your way through mazes. The One thing that I always thought was kind of neat about druid is that the first level takes place above ground. So instead of castle walls and a dungeon, you have hedges and trees and you're outside. But once you go down and begin working your way down through the catacombs and through the mazes, it looks very similar to Gauntlet. You shoot enemies just like Gauntlet. You go through mazes just like Gauntlet. So other than the spell casting uh, portion of the game, it is very similar to Gauntlet. And that's not I'm not knocking the game. I'm just saying that uh, it is a Gauntlet-style game. When the game was released, it received very favorable reviews. Computer Gamer gave the game 18 out of 20. This was back in 1986. Zap gave it 88 out of 100. The Games Machine gave it 83 out of 100. And Happy Computer gave it 80 out of 100. So the lowest score is 4 out of 5. And the highest would be 4.5 out of 5. Druid appeared on the Amstrad CPC. Atari 8-bit computers, the Commodore 64, of course, and the ZX Spectrum. It was also released under the name Druid Kyofu no Tobira as a Famicom disk system for the Japanese Nintendo Famicom. Sequels include Enlightenment, which was released in 1987, which several people believe is a better game. Uh, there are a lot of people that prefer Druid 2 to Druid 1. I always kind of like Druid 1. I love the title screen to Druid 2 better, but I enjoy the gameplay of Druid 1 more. Enlightenment was released for the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, and the ZX Spectrum. And the third game in the Druid trilogy, which was titled Warlock the Avenger, was released in 1991. And it was released for the Amiga, the Atari ST, and the Commodore 64. So, actually, the Commodore 64 is the only platform that all three games were released for. That being said, the Amiga version of Enlightenment and Warlock on the Amiga and the Atari ST both look phenomenal. Uh, they are very, very good-looking games. But the Commodore 64 version... I'm usually biased, but I do believe that is the best 8-bit version of the game. And now let's get into my personal memories of Druid. All right, time travelers! So according to several sources that I found... Druid was released for the Commodore 64 before Gauntlet. And as a home computer owner, this was not unusual. This is kind of what we had. We were used to arcade clones. Commodore 64 had the Great Guiana Sisters instead of Super Mario Brothers. 
So it seemed like we got a lot of knockoffs. But this is the game for me personally that went from being a gauntlet clone to coming up with the gauntlet genre. We don't always call first-person shooter games today Doom clones. There were a lot of Doom clones, but eventually there were first-person shooters that evolved, that took those games further, that added features and added different things that the original didn't have to where they were no longer a clone of Doom, but they were inspired by it, for sure. But it went from being a clone to being a genre. And so this game, to me, there were several games at the time. Um, Into the Demon's Nest. No, is that right? Yeah, Into the Demon's Nest. It was the uh, uh, World War II game that was similar to Gauntlet. Demon Stalkers was another one. Uh, and Druid was different enough from Gauntlet. Visually, it looks very similar to Gauntlet. But once you get into the gameplay, once you understand the nuances of casting the spells, it is different. It is a different type of game. And there's a little bit more strategy involved. So on the surface, yes, gauntlet clone. You could pick up a joystick, run around, shoot things for a while, turn it off, and you would say, that game's just like gauntlet. But the further you play, you'll start to realize the different types of spells and how they have effect on different creatures, having to manage uh, your chaos spells and your key spells. Those type of things do make the game a little different and give it a little bit deeper gameplay. I also have great memories of having friends over and casting the Golem spell so that we could play two-player. And for a while, this was the closest thing we had to playing Gauntlet at home. Now, Gauntlet was released. I, I found both of these games were released in 1986 for the Commodore 64. So there couldn't have been that much time where people were clamoring for Gauntlet on a home computer and had to play Druid instead, but it was a nice change of pace. And so I enjoyed it for that. For graphics... Druid gets four out of five fireballs. The graphics in Druid are very colorful, very bright, very well detailed, and the title screen really pushes it over the edge. For music, I give Druid three out of five fireballs. The opening title song is very good, but there is no in-game music, so I can't give it higher than a three. For sound effects, I also give the game three out of five. They are adequate, but there just aren't that many to the game. Overall gameplay, I give four out of five to Druid. It is a fun alternative to Gauntlet for the Commodore 64. Druid 2, even more so. So if you're looking for something very similar to Gauntlet, but with slightly more depth in gameplay, you might give Druid a try. again for tuning in to Spry Castle. The next game I will be covering is Donkey Kong Jr. released in 2014 by Mr. Sid. If you would like to play Donkey Kong Jr. before the next show is released, head on over to SpriteCastle.com and click the downloads link at the top of the page where you can download Commodore 64 emulators and all the games that have been reviewed on the show. If you would like to send me feedback about this or any episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at RobOHara at RobOHara.com Contact me on Twitter at Commodork. 
Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sprite Castle or leave me a voicemail on the FLAC podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the SpriteCastle.com RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flat at podcast.rubblehair.com and Throwback Reviews at throwbackreviews.com. Both of these shows can also be found at throwbacknetwork.net. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to slaying skeletons and destroying demons, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle.